hymns, even though they don't really mean the same thing at all. And we're going to see a prime example of that today. And it's very important that we understand the difference between two words a lot of people think are synonyms, and they're not joy and happiness. I think most people and too many Christians assume those two words, myrna, mean exactly the same thing, but they don't. And if you don't know the difference, you can't understand what Jesus is teaching us in our passage this morning. Happiness is different than joy. Happiness is based on happenings in Kara's life or Danny's life or Anne's life or Harold's life. Happiness is based on happenings. Happiness refers to positive emotional feelings based on pleasant happenings, based on pleasant circumstances. Uh, therefore, happiness is very fragile because it's based on what we can't control and it's based on things that are constantly changing, our outward circumstances. Happiness is often, not always, but often rooted in superficial things and in ways that encourage us to overlook the truly substantial things in our life. That's why I'm going to try to convince you in this message that happiness is overrated. Now, joy is a completely different thing than happiness. It's much more profound, and it's what the Lord talks about in our passage this morning. Uh, joy is the inner contentment of the believer's soul when he or she is actively occupied with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than happiness, which by definition always involves positive emotions and involves pleasant circumstances, joy is uh, something that transcends our circumstances. Uh, it's something the Lord Jesus had in the worst of circumstances. I mean, Henry and Clay, don't depend on your favorite football team winning all of his games. <laughs> because I don't care if you're an OU person or an OSU person. You know, no happiness. No feliz. <laughs> no feliz in mi corazón ahora. Just telling you. Uh, but think about what the Lord, what the scripture says about the Lord Jesus. Uh, in, in Hebrews 12, we're told, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy not the happiness, Anne, the joy. There's no happiness at a crucifixion. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Uh, happiness always involves positive emotions based on positive circumstances. Joy can have a range of emotional reactions depending on one's personality and one's circumstances from loud ecstatics all the way to quiet stability. I mean, we live in a culture where men aren't supposed to get too excited about anything, and we're not supposed to touch each other unless one of us hits a home run or scores a touchdown. And then we're all over each other, you know? You notice that? Uh, so uh, happiness is the result of happenings. Joy is a completely different thing. It's based on Jesus. We're going to focus on that as Jesus teaches about uh, what spirituality is really all about in John 15. Before we pray for teachability, troops, uh, peace officers, and firefighters, I want to say a word about the persecuted church. Uh, Numbers-wise, persecuted Christians uh, have a larger number. There's a larger number of persecuted Christians today than ever in the history of the faith. Uh, coming up very soon, Sunday, November 2nd, is 
the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And on that Sunday, we'll say a little bit more about that um, uh, in connection with the Congregational Worship Time. But let me just suggest a really helpful website to keep you abreast of what's going on on that front. Persecution.org is a, a great place to, to go so that your prayers for the persecuted church will be right on target based on what's going on. But it's a very dangerous world out there. And it's funny, uh, our Lord is going to deal with that very quickly in the Upper Room Discourse we're studying. In chapter 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, the world isn't believers, folks. Confessing your faith to the world isn't raising your hand at a church service. That's what all the Christians are going to applaud you for that. Confessing your faith in the world is living it out at OU or at Halliburton or Duncan Regional Hospital or with your neighbors because it's real. If the world unbelievers hate you, Jesus says, just realize it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave, servants, that's us, is not greater than the master, the Lord Jesus. He says, if they persecuted me, what's going to happen? They're going to persecute us. We're currently being marginalized in our culture, uh, which is the first major step to active persecution. But in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, uh, most of the Sudan, um, it's, you can't get life insurance if you're a Christian put it that way. So we need to be more aware of that, and we want to be praying in positive directions in that way. So uh, just be aware of that. So let's pray for our teachability, our troops, and for our brethren who are being persecuted. Father, it's such a blessing on this beautiful Lord's Day to meet in this very comfortable facility with all these happy faces and to know that uh, we share a, a common faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though the world doesn't understand it, our culture is marginalizing it, increasingly vilifying it. Uh, there's very little uh, chance somebody's going to come in here and arrest us or, or blow the church up today. But I have fr friends in Syria and uh, Turkey and Egypt and Jordan uh, and Iraq. They can't say that. They go to church uh, uncertain whether they'll all survive the experience. And forgive us for whining about a lot of superficial things we have to deal with in life when so many of our brethren are, are giving the ultimate sacrifice. We think especially of the internment camps in North Korea where thousands and thousands, maybe as high as 100,000 believers are being held in inhuman conditions and uh, worked to death for the state. So I want to pray you encourage those folks today. You'd, uh, I pray as they're faithful to you, I know they're going to get the crown of life, kind of the Congressional Medal of Honor for Christians, and I pray that your reality will be so intense in their soul, they can have the joy the Lord talks about even in their toil. Um, so we pray for them and for their witness and your support and strengthening for them. We thank you, Father, for those uh, in our military that protect and serve us. We think especially of David and Matt. We thank you for these men, their families, the sacrifices all of them make so they can serve in our active military. We're so blessed to have people of that quality serving in our United States Army. We pray you would bless them in their service and in their work and their missions, uh, meet their needs, and give them the joy of Christ in their lives. Uh, we pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, uh, all those who protect and serve us locally, we thank you for them. 
and pray blessing on them today. And we pray, Father, that uh, your Holy Spirit, who inspired this text to record inerrantly the words of Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse, would be our teacher. He'd illumine the text and make us be able to understand it and move it from information in our heads to transforming truths in our hearts and then out our our mouths, our hands, and our feet, and our relationships to your glory. I pray you'd be glorified in the process and the product of that. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Talking about happiness based on happenings, circumstances, as opposed to joy, which is much more profound. You know, one of the things that can bring you a lot of happiness in your life uh, are, are your children. And now this is a picture of my family about a year before Cooper showed up, and then Lincoln, and, and Vivian, and Peter. But that's my family, and I can tell you I've had uh, a lot of happiness and a lot of sadness at times as my, I've interacted with my family. But today, just to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, top three things no Christian father has ever said to his children. I can do that again, but I'm not. Son, you want to be a pro baseball player? I'd always hoped you'd be a pro poker player. I didn't say these were funny or anything like that. You skip school today? When I was your age, I skipped school all the time, so don't worry about it. I got a wry smile from my man. And that's all he gives you. And hold your applause, the last one. Uh, I can't believe you asked your mom for a baby turtle. I was going to surprise both of you with a baby elephant. Let's rapidly move to a reminder (laughs) that uh, this Sunday is the third Sunday in the month, and on third Sundays, rather than the regular, quote-unquote, second hour activities, we want all the adults, including the youngest adults, to meet in elders groups for sharing in prayer. If you possibly can, please plug into that today. All right, we are looking at the Upper Room Discourse, which is in the very center of the Gospel of John, URD, Upper Room Discourse, right in the middle of it. But the key to the Gospel of John hangs at the back door. At the very end of the body of the book, John says this, many other things Jesus also did that are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I could tell you about everything I saw. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Hamashiach. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And that believing, you would have life in his name. So the the core of the Gospel of John really is two ideas. Believe in Christ and receive eternal life. And then as a believer, abide in Christ and proceed. Express your eternal life. Because Christ died on the cross And because Christ died for our sins, he was judged for our sins as our substitute. We don't have to die in our sins, but Jesus isn't dead anymore. Uh, A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Now, if you're in Colorado, you're closer to heaven, but a dead Savior can't get you from Colorado to heaven. But the resurrected one is the only one who can. And salvation is not a work It's of God's grace, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, The scripture says, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. At our worst, we break our own standards, much less God's. And there's nothing we can do to fix it by the works of the law, 
no flesh shall be justified in his sight. We're told that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, paid for on the cross, validated by the resurrection, and saving faith is all the faith you've got. It's active, receptive trust in the crucified, risen Savior. Uh, John summarizes it nicely in the prologue of his gospel. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name and who he is and what he did. Thief on the cross, remember me, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, what's he saying? I'm a sinner, I can't fix it, you can and I want you to. It's not just mental assent to facts, full consent of the will, active, receptive trust. That's where the Christian journey starts. But how do Christians spiritually fellowship with a Savior who's no longer walking around on the planet since the first century? That was the big question the Ephraim Discourse dealt with intimately for the 11 apostles because they've been walking around with him for three years. And when he tells them repeatedly in this discourse, a little while longer, I'm out of here. And you can't come, but you'll come later. He's talking about going back to heaven. How do we do that? How can Steve Skinner possibly fellowship? I mean, he fellowships with his wife and his son and his daughter-in-law and his friends because he can go to dinner with them and do stuff with them. But how do you spiritually fellowship with a physically absent Savior that's what the Upper Room Discourse is all about. Very center of the book and its structure. And the funny thing is, we got, what, five chapters in the Upper Room Discourse? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. But only two of them take place in the Upper Room. The Upper Room Discourse is a technical term. At the end of chapter 14, they get up and they leave the Upper Room and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane going right past the temple, which would have been brightly illuminated, and what's happening in the temple all these sacrifices that point to an ultimate sacrifice, right? So it's interesting and poignant. That's what happens there. The Upper Room Discourse has three parts. We're in the middle part. I like to call it top bun, bottom bun, meet in the middle. Top bun is the pattern for fellowship with the Lord. And the pattern was what? What did Jesus do? Wash the disciples' feet. What does that teach us? Fellowship with God is not you telling everybody else what to do, not you being self-righteous supervisor. It's about you being a servant in the name of Christ with a great attitude because you're focusing on him, not on the reactions you get. Uh, the meat in the middle talks about the dynamics, principles of fellowship with a physically absent Savior. And there's one word it revolves around, it's described multiple ways, abiding in Christ. And then in the last chapter, chapter 17, Jesus prays for you specifically. We'll show you that, not just for the apostles. But, whoops. Yeah, I wanted to. That slide right there. Yeah. Um, what's abiding in Christ? Abiding in Christ is a believer recognizing and responding from the heart. Because not just behavior modification, list of rules I got to follow. It's recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who saved us as our loving, living Lord, so we happily, fully see our lives as an opportunity to serve Him, regardless of where we work or how we spend our time. It's living for the one who died for us. Now, last week, in the first uh, six verses of chapter 15, we found out that believers are to abide in Christ, recognize and respond from the heart, so it's relational, not just mechanical, to the one who has saved us, so we can produce spiritual fruit and avoid spiritual mediocrity today, verses 7 through 11. 
we're going to see that believers should abide in Christ to experience spiritual reality in its fullness. Let's read those verses. And I'm looking at the New American Standard translation. You may have a different one. Jesus says, if, and boy, that's a big if, Kara. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so demonstrate that you're my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will be abiding in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and constantly, perfectly abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that you may be happy. Uh Uh-uh. There's a lot of things that will make you happy you shouldn't do, places you shouldn't go. My mama used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. And, you know, but for me, you know, if I'm watching reruns of the Golf Channel, you know, 1.30 in the morning, it's all good. Uh, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. How much is that worth? And that your joy may be made full. Let's look at this passage He's telling us that believers, if you're a believer in Christ, put your name in the blank. Katie Davis is to be abiding in Christ, recognizing, responding from the heart to the Lord Jesus at a personal, loving, obedient level so she can fully express prayer, spiritual fruit, agape love, and kara, joy, not just happiness. Let's look at verse 7 again. Jesus says, if you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Who's he talking to in context, Steve? The 11 believing apostles, and it applies to every believer, obviously. If you abide in me, believer, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, notice on this graphic up here, Michael, you see all that? What would you say about that, that I and that F? It's a big if. That's third-class condition in the Greek and third-class condition in conditional uh, statements like that is like an English if. That's why we tend to use the word if in English. If uh, OSU plays better next week, they might win, you know? And it might happen, it might not happen. Uh, third-class condition in the Greek means maybe you will and maybe you won't. Sometimes you will and sometimes you won't. If you abide in me, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, and maybe I will and maybe I won't. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, those are overlapping categories, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, a couple weeks ago in chapter 14, I I knew I blew people's socks off, go back to verse 13 and 14, chapter 14, when I said when you read seemingly unconditional statements about prayer like this one, 14 Chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, whatever Jesus says, whatever you, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. And I told you, number one, God's too smart to give you everything you ask for. Because I know for a fact he's too smart to give me everything I ask for. And I'm a preacher, so I ought to get what I'm asking for every time, right? But in every language, all, every uh, can mean things like, all without any distinction, or uh, all without any exception. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all with no exception. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not every single act of evil goes back to love of money. The fall, Adam and Eve, they hadn't even invented money yet. So that wasn't, money wasn't the problem. But it's the root of all kinds of major categories of evil. So if you're 
motivated by the love of money, and this hits us kind of close this past week. The love of money is the reason that this maniac killed his parents and his sister. That's why he did it. It's all about money. Show me the money, right? So I told you then that you have to look at those unconditional seemingly statements, aware of that. And then even in that context, verse 13 says, ask me whatever and I'll give it to you so that my father be glorified. So it's, it's, he's going to give you what you need so the father can be glorified in your life. The way I explain it, harmony is the Lord will always give you everything you need so you can be or become what he wants you to be in your character. He won't necessarily give you the car you want, the house you want, the circumstances you want. Now you go back to our passage just now, verse 7, chapter 15. It's really clear there's a condition here, right, Bobby? Uh, and so it's just important. We need to love prayer and see prayer as critically important and very central to our lives of faith. But prayer is not a blank check. God is not our errand boy. It's an open book where we can be totally open with God, but where we're seeking and submitting to his will, right? Uh, believers who are abiding in Christ and his word always pray either overtly or in their hearts, Colin, uh, not my will, but thy will be done. I mean, that's just a premise of prayer. God's the chief. we just the Indians. I'm sorry, the Native Americans, okay? Uh, prayer's not a crowbar we can use to pry things out of God's hands. It's a channel of communication through which uh, Janice Skinner or Sue Raska seek and submit to God's will as part of a communication process God's included in this plan for the outworking of his will. So our prayers are part of the matrix God's planned to get to other endpoints. So prayer does matter, but it doesn't make or force God to do our will over his. And I think anytime you hear uh, whomever, Joel Olstein or somebody like that, tell you if you have enough faith, anything you ask for, he's going to give you every time. It doesn't work if you have oral cancer. It doesn't work. But that's not what the word is promising us. If you abide in me and my words are abiding in you as you're praying, not my will but thy will, you're going to get what you need so you can be what I want you to be. And that's what ought to be important to us ultimately. Okay? Verse 8. So not only should we abide in Christ so we can experience fullness of prayer, Verse 8, we should be abiding in Christ so we can experience fullness of fruitfulness as disciples. Jesus says, my Father's glorified by this, that you, Savannah Bowers, bear much fruit. And so demonstrate, not just at church, but even at Emerson Elementary School, uh, to be my disciple. Okay, My Father's glorified by this, Linda Keeney, that you bear much fruit, loving your husband who has physical issues, and loving your Lord and your family and doing what you can to build into the kingdom. Uh, by doing that, people can tell we're different. And that's really important because he's already told us back in 1335 in this same upper room discourse, by this, all men, people, unbelievers in the world will know that you are my disciples and wonder what's going on if you have love for one another. Uh, and I apologize to Dale and to Maxine for overloading the uh, bulletin with inserts this week. But next week, we're going to have a separate guide to the inserts in the bulletin so you can find them all. And so I, I, you know, at the last minute, because I felt like we just needed one more insert, 
uh, I, I, I stuck this in here. And I haven't read the book, but I know this author is very good. But I just saw this kind of uh, promotional blurb about an interview the Christian Research Institute was going to have with this author. Os Guinness, if you haven't heard of him, uh, was, is Francis Schaeffer's son-in-law. And you say, who's Francis Schaeffer? You're hopeless. Now, I'm, I, I, I don't have time to explain, but he was like one of the greatest Christian philosophers of the 20th century, but he's with the Lord right now. And Os Guinness continues his kind of his line of thinking. But and as I, I've got a disclaimer at the bottom, but let me just read it to you. I know you read better than I do. Dr. Os Guinness notes, quote, Western cultural elites, the people in academia and industry for the most part, have disregarded God for m- more than two centuries. That's just the way it is. But now, in the early, but the average person didn't connect all the dots there. But now in the early 21st century, Guinness concludes, quote, their movement from disregard for faith to desecration, to decadence, is going mainstream. It's just everybody's embracing it. You notice that we're redefining everything worth redefining the wrong ways. It's not good. Um, And according to Dr. Guinness, the U.S. is only the lead society among many Western cultures close to a moral tipping point. Question, response, is there genuine hope for societal redemption and renewal in the midst of growing decadence? It's easy to kind of give up hope. some of our senior citizens know just how far the culture's fallen because they've seen it, uh, and I've certainly seen it drop just unbelievably. And as John has often said to me, it seems like it's just getting faster all the time. It's like we're going down a more pronounced slope in, in rejecting everything worth believing and doing. In his new book, Guinness's book, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, uh, however dark the times, Dr. Guinness declares a resounding yes, there is genuine hope. Things may get so bad the culture may hit rock bottom and we might have a national revival on our hands right before we self-destruct culturally. It could happen if God wills. When the gospel is lived out in practice, like the Lord's saying here, we're bearing a lot of fruits and people can tell we're different at high school, at college, as a teacher, as a parent of, of students, um, Henry and Clay, you too, okay? Your attitude towards school is a big part of your Christian life. You've got to have a great attitude. Just, it's just as important as sports. In fact, really, it's more important than sports. You wouldn't go half speed in practice. You wouldn't go half speed in a wrestling drill, would you? No way. I know you wouldn't. So you, you, you approach your academics the same way. When the gospel is lived out in practice in ways like that, as a function, not just your parents telling you to do the right thing, but because you're abiding in Christ, it is the most powerful force in history, both for individuals and entire societies, and I'm not endorsing the book because I haven't read it, but I thought the essence of that is helpful and encouraging, and I thought it tied directly into what the Lord is saying here in verse 8. Okay, believers, David Moore, are to abide in Christ so he can experience fullness of prayer, fullness of fruit in his Christian life. Now verses 9 through 10, um, fullness of love, agape love, seeking other people's highest good consistent with God's glory. Verse 9 and 10 says this. Jesus says, just as the Father, God the Father, has loved me, I have also loved all y'all. And have they told you in Oklahoma we got y'all, which is singular, all y'all is plural, and in the Greek they actually spell those terms differently so you can always tell which one it is. You don't have to doubt, like English is very generic, but Greek's more specific on that stuff. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved all y'all. 
Now I want you to abide in my love. If you're abiding in Christ, by definition, you're going to be abiding in his word and abiding in his love. These are overlapping categories, right? If you keep my commandments, that's going to demonstrate you are, in fact, abiding in me, abiding in my love, abiding in my word. Just as I have kept my father's commandments, and he did that perfectly, and constantly abide in his love. Um, To abide in Christ is to recognize and respond from the heart in loving obedience to the one who saved us. So these kind of things flow directly out of that, and they purify them. So we're not just obeying rules. We're submitting to a ruler who's first our Savior, who we love, respect, revere, and who literally is our best friend. Um, And uh, that's critically important. In other words, a loving obedience to Christ is an outward expression you're abiding in him. It's not a grim resignation like you're doing God and the rest of us a favor showing up for prayer meeting. It's you're here because you want to. I had both Rick and Carla tell me a dozen different times, and you probably have heard them say this, you know, when you can't physically come to church anymore, you realize you don't have to go to church. You get to go to church. And he was here every time he could possibly be, even after they ripped his throat and tongue out of his mouth to try to kill the cancer. And, you know, I, I grew up, I loved church, but I got to tell you, my background was, uh, my mother was Lutheran. I talked about this once in a little bit. I'll give you a short version. My mother was Lutheran, maybe or maybe not regenerate. My dad was a Baptist, definitely not a believer. And so when I, their firstborn son, was old enough that they wanted to get rid of me on Sunday morning so they could do other things probably, uh, my mother, who was a Lutheran, would have probably taken me to the Lutheran church and maybe went with me some of the time. But my dad, who never went to church, wasn't a believer, but grew up with the greatest Christian mom of all time next to the Virgin Mary, uh, insisted his son be driven by his wife, because he wasn't going to drive me to church, to a Baptist church. So, you know, I was taken to a Baptist church and dropped off, you know, at four, five, six, seven, and you know what? I loved it. I always loved church. Even before I got saved, I loved church. I mean, they had Play Doh. They had juice, they had cookies, crackers, lots of smiles, you know, everybody happy to see me. What's better than that, you know? So I grew up where I just loved going to church. And then guess what? In my high school years, uh, my parents bought a business, driving range, par three golf course we built one summer. And from the middle of my sophomore year, sophomore year until I got married and, and fled the status quo, I worked 364 days a year. My dad gave me Christmas off. That was the one thing that closed the driving range. Every year, Christmas, we were all closed. And one year he said, you know what, everybody gets new golf clubs for Christmas. I said, no, I'm not working today. <laughs> but yeah, I went to college on my way to dental school or I was at the driving range seven days a week and I couldn't go to church anymore. Because guess, guess who opened the driving range at seven in the morning on Sunday mornings? That'd be me. So I can remember, you know, loving church, becoming a believer at age nine, wanting to go to church more than my mother would take me, and then not being able to go at all for like three or four years. And so I've never gotten over just, the, just looking forward to Sundays, even as a full-time professional Christian, you know? <laughs> uh, I remember one time I was making copies at CU Duncan, and one of my teaching colleagues, it was the week before Easter, and she looked at me and said, man, you clergymen have a busy week uh, on Easter week. Man, I bet it's a lot of stress. I said, hey, baby, this is my Super Bowl. <laughs> you kidding? It's nothing better than Easter. And every, why, why do Christians, why have Christians now, now, now uh, the cool churches have Friday night services because they don't want the cool people to have to get up early on Sundays. But for 2,000 years, even when people knew it would make them easy to find 
Christians have always met primarily, and everything else that they do is secondary, on Sunday. Why do they meet on Sunday? Day of the resurrection. Really, we should celebrate the resurrection every day, but the Lord's Day, Sunday, is always supposed to focus on the resurrected Christ. And so, uh, to me, when people act like they have to do the right thing, and kind of, especially like coming to church and stuff, I'm thinking, what planet are these people from, man? You get to come to this church. You ought to be thankful. And I know you guys like being here, so that's, that's all good. But yeah, it, Rick and, and Carla would say that, and it kind of ripped my heart out because, you know what, uh, as soon as they plugged into this church 10 years ago, it's like they're here every time the doors are open, they're early, they stay late. What can I do to help? As opposed to, I don't like this, 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 change it, which some people do to you. It's like, we're here, let's make it better. It's not perfect, but we'll do whatever you want us to do. And I think that's what abiding in Christ does. You, you, you really are outstanding in the things you plug into, including your church, and, but you never notice how great you are, right? Uh, you're doing the right things for the right reasons, that's what agape love drives you to. Look at 1 John. You know, you got the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you got the epistle, the letter of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John near the back of the New Testament. But it's so important that we do the right thing for the right reasons. And when we're focusing and responding and centered on Christ, and that's the reason we're doing everything we do, then we don't have that issue uh, a lot of Christians settle for just behavior modification, legalistic list of rules. I keep them better than you, so I'm better than you are. Uh, and everybody ought to tell me how great I am all day long. And that's just not the way normative Christianity works. Loving obedience to Christ is an outward expression of love for Christ. That's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 15. But now we're looking at 1 John 5, which reads this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you've trusted him as Savior, is born of God. And whoever loves the Father who saved him through Christ loves the child born of him. We ought to love other people, sinners saved by grace too, just because they're believers. And I've been all over the world, and I know Iraqis and Syrians and Lebanese and Egyptians and Iraqis that pastor churches. I remember spending one weekend on the Syrian border, Mafraq, Jordan. We went across the border illegally, bumped into some American military vehicles. They chatted with us. What are you doing here? Well, you know, it's, we're just a preacher looking around. <laughs> and stuff like that. It really happened. Um, and I'm wondering about how my friend Noor is doing on the Syrian border right now. That means dove in, in Arabic. But uh, it's amazing how the, our connection in Christ allows us to have agape for all these people despite different colors, countries, and cultures. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Uh, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And watch this, Riley. His commandments are not burdensome. If you're abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, abiding in his love, you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, and you get to be faithful to your wife. You, you get to show up on time and meet and exceed your boss's expectations. What could be better than that? You get to come to church when the doors are open. It's not a grim resignation, I'm going to do the right thing, but I don't really want to be here. Whatever's born of God overcomes the world because the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus except that he's the exclusive issue of eternal life. He's the Christ, and this is the victory has overcome the world, our faith. So who's the one who overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God? Go back to chapter 15. We've seen that uh, we need to be abiding in Christ as believers so we can experience fullness of spiritual reality. I think the reason people get burned out and drop out of churches, they're not abiding in Christ. They may not be 
committing any felonies, but they're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, and that gets to be a cold orthodoxy. Fullness of prayer, fruit, love, and now joy. We started with, with joy, and now we're going to focus on joy for a few minutes. Uh, let's look at verse 11. We've got to love this one. Jesus says, these things, immediate context primarily, but the whole of the discourse, I'm sure, I've spoken to all y'all, the 11 believing apostles, and to every believer in this room and in the world, so that my joy may, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe you'll abide, maybe you won't, sometimes you won't, sometimes you will, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Watch this, joy is not primarily an emotion. What is that called? Happiness, based on positive happenings. Joy is the inner contentment of the soul, the believer's soul, actively recognizing and responding and appreciating who Jesus Christ is. Uh, joy can be accompanied by a range of emotions, uh, depending on your circumstances and your basic personality. It's not some fakey, positive mental attitude stuff. Hey, my house just burned down, but I got the joy of Jesus, yeah. That's not real, okay? I got the joy of Jesus, and I just found out my daughter's in ICU. You know, this fakey, go to church, put on a smile, act like you got it all together thing. This isn't a museum for plaster saints. It's kind of a spiritual Simmons Center where we're going to give you some exercises to help you get stronger, right? It's not a fakey thing. I don't see a lot of happy smiles at the crucifixion, do you? But we're told the Lord had joy during the brutality. He wasn't ecstatically happy, but he had a stable consistency. Uh, he kept entrusting himself, Jesus, to the one who judges righteously, First Peter says. So that's it. I like to compare that to the eye of the hurricane. I grew up in Miami, Florida, elementary school. We had a hurricane go right over our house. And it's an eerie thing because it's all these high winds. And then for just a couple minutes, it's just dead silent. They warned us. Don't go out during the eye of the hurricane because people will go out and expect, you know, expect some of the damage and get too far away from their house. And then when the other side of the storm hits you, you can have other things fall on you and get blown around and stuff like that. But I've always said, you know, true spirituality isn't us denying reality, right? It's not us being happy about everything. Uh, well, doesn't it say, doesn't the scripture say, uh, for everything rejoice because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? Uh-uh doesn't say for everything. It says in everything, give thanks. In spite of everything. Oral cancer, can you say that? Three people killed a mile away from here, can you say that? There's no happiness in that whatsoever. We're not supposed to be happy about abortions, pornography, drug addiction, drunk driving, murders. Those aren't happy things. They're not righteous things. But we can't have a joy even though we're live in a world full of this kind of stuff. Now watch this. The Lord kind of talks about a baseline and then beyond the baseline. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you is kind of a normative status as you're abiding in me and as you get closer and closer in fellowship with the Savior that your joy may be made full. I love that. Fullness of joy. Let's call that the settled conviction of the soul actively engaged over time in a substantial and growing experiential knowledge of Christ. Uh, I've thought about people in my life. Uh, Paula Roundtree was somebody. 
she, did, she wasn't perfect, but she really had a joy that was, I think, a fullness of joy. Uh, my grandmother, which I said was the greatest Christian lady uh, since the Virgin Mary, you know, she was like that. When everybody on my side of the family was going to disown me when I told them I was going to leave dental school and go to Dallas Seminary, really the only person on my side of the family was, that liked it was my grandmother. And uh, another key person was Dot, my mother-in-law, who's battling cancer now. Uh, where she had ulterior motives. I would, a couple, she was so happy that I was going to leave dental school and go to seminary, whereas my dad wouldn't talk to me. My mother had to you know, go along and live with my dad, so she wasn't going to talk to me and all this stuff. My sisters had no idea what to do. I would say I got married under false pretenses because they thought, you know, my, Debbie and her family thought they were getting a dentist. They ended up with a preacher. You know? <laughs> Not good, you know, but Dot was always so supportive. And then a couple years later, I said, you know, when everybody was really upset and everything, you seemed so happy. She said, well, here's the deal. I had a feeling you were going to get your dental degree and go to Africa or something. I'd never seen my grandkids and be a dental missionary. But now you want to be a Bible-teaching pastor, preferably in a small town where they need good pastors? I said, yeah, I can do that because that's much better for me. So that's a bad reason to be happy, Dot, but I'm just telling you. Take this home. We've got good news, better news, and best news. Joy is every believer's birthright. You, you, you can have this. It can be yours, and it's not fragile based on your circumstances. Fullness of joy is possible for every believer, but it's going to take you a while to get there. I don't think new believers have the capacity for that. Just like wisdom in its full sense is something it takes. You've got to have a couple of laps in life to get wisdom in its fullest sense. It's a growing thing. It just kind of makes you excited about getting old, right, Steve? It's all good. And then the best news is none of this is about who we are, what we do, but about our realizing that everything we are and do must be centered on him, must be based on abiding in him. And so I'm going to tell you something that uh, you're not going to hear from Joel Olstein. Happiness is overrated. I found this cartoon after, I won't tell you how long it took me to find it. It's a long time. Uh, happiness is overrated. Nobody ever accomplished anything great while they were happy. If Thomas Edison had been happy with torches, we would not have the light bulb. Right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Write that down. Uh, but let me say this. Uh, for you. And look, you know me, there's no off position on the fun machine in my heart. I'm telling you, okay? I'm all about happy stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be happy. But happiness has limitations joy doesn't have because it's based 100% on positive circumstances, and you're not always going to have positive circumstances, Andrew. There's not, nobody always has positive circumstances, not a single person in the whole world. So it's very fragile, and quite often, not always, is rooted in superficial things like OSU football games. Now, you know what, that was, that was hard to watch, but I watched it with the sound turned down, so it made it a little bit easier. But I, mean, I did, but uh, uh, you know what, they're just kids. You know? um, but watch this, and I'm going to finish with this in a couple of minutes, so hang on. Uh, Emma, this is going to save so much heartache in your life. You've got to always biblically evaluate any and all claims that X... And X is a variable. It can stand for anything, Kara. X will make you happy. Uh, this is an issue every single person in this room deals with all the time. Not just drug pushers coming to you trying to say, hey, shoot this, take this, ingest this, it'll make you happy. You realize every commercial, Dina, every commercial you've ever seen on TV or you've ever been exposed to radio, internet, is telling you, our product will make you happy. 
right? They're trying to convince you. And my reaction to that would start here. Josh McDowell emphasizes that sin offers us sinners some kind of short-term, usually illegitimate, immediate gratification, which means sin will make us happy temporarily, or at least less miserable. <laughs> but you get diminishing returns over time, that always happens, such that what seems terrific becomes a terrible tyrant. That's kind of what addiction's about, right, Doug? That's what it's all about. So let me say two things about that. The fact that every sin can make us happy, Riley, is not a good reason to sin. And boy, those Dunkin' Demons were playing good last Thursday night. Maybe we ought to play Thursday night more often. I don't know, just me. Uh, that was good. That was good. That was a big one. Uh, that's not a good enough reason to be selfish, stupid, and lazy because it's diminishing returns and the, the positive that you get out of it is going to eventually go away anyway. But here's the flip side, and this is what too many Christians buy into, I think, in Bible-believing churches. The fact that every sin can make us happy does not mean that everything that makes us happy is sin. Can I say that again? Just because every sin can make us happy doesn't mean that everything that can make us happy is necessarily sin. There's a lot of good things that can make us happy. Graduating from high school makes people happy. There's nothing wrong with that. Getting a promotion at work can make you happy. Nothing wrong with that, isn't it, Nicole? Uh, having a biopsy return negative, that make you happy. Uh, now, a lot of the stuff that makes us happy isn't sin, but it's superficial. And if we focus on superficial too much, that becomes a sin issue. But uh, just because something feels good or makes us happy doesn't necessarily mean it's sin. However, a lot of Christians, including a lot of preachers, don't get that. They feel it's their mission. You know, somebody said the Puritans were people obsessed with the fear that somewhere, someone was having a good time. <laughs> and that's just not what Jesus is talking about here. In a fabulous book I'm just starting to read called Overcomer's Outreach, let me read about a guy who had that kind of teaching in his Christian life. If it feels good, don't do it because it can't be good. If it makes you happy, it's got to be bad. And it really messed him up for a long time until he kind of came back to where Jesus wanted him to be. He says this, talking about this high school, he begged his parents to send him to across the country based on a very legalistic mindset. He said, I remember a few fun times at school, but looking back, this is a Christian school, I all love the Lord, all trying to do the right thing. What stands out is a list of crazy rules we were forced to accept. I'm not talking about the clear guidelines for living God has specified in the Bible. I'm talking about man-made rules, because if it makes you happy, it's got to be sin. That's not true. Breaking one of the school's rules would result in demerits that could lead to being expelled. We were not allowed to attend movies, listen to certain types of music, or play cards, okay? Because that queen of hearts, you know that queen of hearts, okay? And by the way, if you want to be legalistic, bagpipes are evil. They got to be. Let me tell you why. Bagpipes, you have this big animal skin you blow into. It's got a bunch of horns sticking out of it, like something out of the book of Revelation. And the worst part is, the men that play bagpipes wear women's clothing. <laughs> you know, you can make a good case and vilify stuff like that, and we wonder why the world's afraid of us, because we are saying ridiculous stuff that's not true. Um, 
He says, we were not allowed to attend movies, listen to certain types of music, or play cards. Any physical sensation stronger than an itch was considered to be a sin. <laughs> we were instructed not to pray for Billy Graham. This was a few years ago when he was up and coming. Because his theological position was not exactly the same in all points as the founder of our school. I mean, really? TBF is the antidote to that. Some people don't get it, but to me, this is the real deal. The rules about dating mandated that fellows could only take a girl to an approved school lounge, resembling a furniture store filled with couches and armchairs, and could only talk to her with a chaperone seated close by. Holding hands was considered to be totally taboo. I bought in this system hook, line, and sinker. The underlying message was I didn't need to think. I could let the ruler or the leaders of the school do that for me. I decided that feelings must be bad, so if a feeling of emotion came up, I just repressed it. Since you shouldn't speak about any subject in a way that differed from the official party line, I simply went along with this insanity. Looking back, the thing I'm the saddest about is my own lack of discernment. I didn't realize how these experiences would affect me later. He ends up dropping out of church, questioning his faith, walling in addiction, and then he realized what he was reacting to was a caricature and a bad one of what Christianity and Jesus is really all about. So let me just end here. Let me finally, actually finally end, okay? In this amazing passage, which is one of my favorites, the Lord is saying we should seek joy and not just settle for happiness. And we have a culture, you know, intoxicated with the search for happiness, and it's a problem. And the secret of joy isn't a secret. It's all about abiding in Christ. It's not about religion, ritual, rules. It's a dynamic, loving relationship with a ruler who's first our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, fill us with uh, your light and your love, your word, and help us to be centered from the depth of our heart to the one who saved us. Help us to realize our baseline not just on Sunday morning, but tomorrow morning at work or school, or whatever we do, has got to be us recognizing, responding from the heart to the one who saved us. So we do the right things for the right reasons, and we never notice how wonderful we are. We're just focused on the greatness of your grace in Jesus Christ, his person and work. Pray for each one who's here who's a believer. Let us see that you're calling us graciously to something that transcends uh, a frantic attempt to grasp happiness to a connection that will be profound, ever-growing, that's independent of our circumstances. We can't overrate it. It's at the very core of what spirituality is all about, our being abiding in Christ and enjoying his joy, his power, and his peace. For anyone here this morning who's not, by the work of your spirit, uh, come to and believe in Christ, I pray you'd open their eyes to see and trust in this full sufficiency of the crucified, risen Savior, and from the depth of their heart, they might put their trust and faith alone in Him and receive the gift of eternal life. Uh, thank you for each, each one who's here. We pray you continue to work throughout the building the rest of the morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.